0: I'd like to continue our discussion today with the Cold War and its connection to the Moon. Let's pick things back up on April 9, 1959, when the United States announced the Mercury 7 astronauts. Shepard, Grissom, Cooper, Schirra, Slayton, Glenn, and Carpenter are shown on the right. They flew six Mercury missions between 1961 and 1963. Deke Slayton was grounded after his selection due to a heart condition. From the time of their selection, these astronauts were famous and were thought to have, quote, the right stuff, as portrayed in the book and the film of the same name. Before they were selected, astronaut candidates had to undergo a series of medical tests. This video describes some of those tests.
1: It's reported to the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico for an exhaustive series of physical examinations. These tests were divided between those given under normal clinical procedures and a series used for the first time in Project Mercury. A series of dynamic tests designed to measure the candidate's abilities during physical stress. Laboratory studies were made in each physiological area. As military pilots, these men had passed yearly flight physicals. But here at the Lovelace Clinic, each measurable reaction of body chemistry, each physical function was measured, probed, diagnosed. What is the specific gravity of his body? What is his blood volume, water volume? What is his total body radiation count? We are listening to his heart. When the astronaut is orbiting in space, the measure of his heart's contraction and expansion will be telemetered to the Mercury tracking stations. After a week of examinations, the candidates were sent on to the Wright Air Development Center in Dayton for stress evaluation and psychological tests. This Project Mercury candidate is preparing for stress. The weight of eight gravities will thrust upon him as he rides the human centrifuge. are studied. The results will indicate how he fared under multiple gravity forces. Did he show a tendency to pull back? No. Was his tolerance level low or was it high? Now, can we shake his equilibrium? How does this affect his pulse and blood pressure? And what about his mental balance, his imagination, his personality, motivation? How does he see the different problems of living? And how has life affected him as an individual? Test his memory, comprehension, perception, visualization. Ask him to describe himself in a hundred different ways with a battery of tests. Now take him up to 65,000 feet for one hour in a pressure chamber. Now have him do this for five minutes. Then ask him to take a walk, walk until his heart beats 180 times a minute, elevate the incline one degree every minute. These tests continued until all 32 men had been evaluated.
0: Let's now start looking at the various Mercury missions, but before that I want to remind you that the Mercury program used two rockets. The Redstone rocket is shown on the left and the Atlas rocket is shown on the right. You'll notice that the top of both rockets are similar since they both had Mercury capsules on top with a red launch escape tower. As we have discussed, the Redstone rocket was not very powerful, so it could only take astronauts on suborbital missions. The more powerful Atlas rocket was capable of putting astronauts into Earth orbit. On July 29, 1960, the United States launched Mercury Atlas 1. Recall how these missions had a hyphenated name with the program name and the rocket name. This mission was fortunately uncrewed since the rocket broke apart about one minute into the flight. On the right is an image of the recovered Mercury capsule. The following month, on August 19th. 1960, the Soviet Union launched Korobold Sputnik 2, which was the first mission to fly animals to space and safely return them back to Earth. There were two dogs, Belka and Strelka, along with 40 mice, two rats, and plants. Belka and Strelka were preserved using taxidermy as shown in the images. I should note that there was a previous unnamed mission where two dogs died. So while the Soviet Union was well ahead at this point in the space race, at times they were also experiencing their own failures. On November 21, 1960, the United States launched Mercury Redstone 1. This was the first test of the Redstone rocket with a Mercury capsule. Again, this was fortunately an uncrewed mission. This mission is colloquially referred to as the 4-inch flight. Take a moment to look at the image to see if you can figure out what went wrong. Let's take a look at a video that shows what happened.
2: MR-1 was again scheduled for launch and the countdown began. Everything proceeded normally and all checks forecasted a successful launch. The repaired attitude control system on the spacecraft checked out perfectly. Weather was good all the way down the Atlantic range. Tracking and telemetry equipment were completely operational and ready to go. The recovery forces were deployed in the prescribed landing area, ready to pick up the spacecraft. The countdown neared zero. redstone engine fired, then shut down almost immediately. The escape tower fired. The antenna canister lid opened, the drogue chute popped, followed by the main chute, and then the reserve parachute. When the spacecraft received the engine shutdown signal, it began to do exactly what it was supposed to do. In response to the signals received, the craft functioned properly. Both the escape rocket and the parachute recovery system went through the normal sequence of action. A careful examination of telemetry data and the booster itself showed the premature engine shutdown to be caused by a relatively simple fault in a piece of ground support equipment.
0: One issue was that a wire that was of the incorrect length came loose too early. That was why the engine cut off early. When the engine cut off, the rocket fell back down. That's the reason why it's called the 4-inch flight. The launch escape tower jettisoned since the computer figured the rocket had reached its highest point and thus no longer needed the launch escape tower. When the rocket sat back on the launch pad, the computer also detected that its altitude was low and deployed the parachutes. Logically, the computer was following all the steps it was supposed to so that was okay. The huge problem was when the rocket landed back on the launch pad and sat there. This was a fully loaded rocket that was capable of igniting. It was very dangerous since the rocket could have exploded. To make things worse, those parachutes could have gotten caught by the wind and pulled the rocket down. Luckily, the winds were not that strong that day. They still had a problem with the fully fueled rocket sitting on the launch pad. Since the rocket lifted off a little, the cables connected to the rocket that could have been used to send a signal to the rocket were no longer connected. One suggestion was to send a few folks close to the rocket to replug those cables, but they decided against that since it would have put ground crew personnel at risk. Another suggestion was to shoot the propellant tanks with a rifle to drain them out. This was an actual suggestion that someone had. I really hope that person was promptly fired. They didn't shoot at the rocket, thankfully. That would have been really stupid. The sensible suggestion that they followed was to let the rocket sit on the launch pad till the next day. By that time, the rocket's batteries would have been drained. Also, just sitting outside, Side, the heating of the liquid oxygen in the tanks would cause it to vaporize. That excess pressure would have been released by the built-in vents. So fortunately, they were able to disassemble this rocket without anyone getting hurt. This incident led Chris Kraft, NASA's first flight director, to come up with a rule. He said, this is the first rule of flight control. If you don't know what to do, don't do anything. Chris Kraft passed away on July 22nd of this year. On January 31st, 1961, the United States launched Mercury Redstone 2 with a Chimpanzee named Ham. Ham became the first hominid in space and returned safely. On the left is Ham prior to the flight, and on the right is him on the recovery ship after the flight. On April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space during the Vostok 1 mission of the Soviet Union. He orbited the Earth once and returned to Earth safely. This video shows footage of celebrations in the Soviet Union in honor of Yuri Gagarin's mission.
3: Russians have deified as the man of the century arrives at the airport outside of Moscow for his first public appearance. Questions that have arisen in the West about the validity of his life have no place here today as the crowds go wild over the first man to conquer space. Major Gagarin's initial function is a long red carpeted walk to the platform where Khrushchev greets him. Gagarin puts party first by thanking the communists for the opportunity. This the interrupts with a Russian bear hug and kiss as Yuri's pictures are waved. There have been grumblings in Russia about the cost of the space program, but that is forgotten today as tens of thousands pour into Red Square to get a glimpse of their hero. He stands atop Lenin's tomb and receives their accolades. There have been many unanswered questions about the fight. But there's no question of who is number one man in Russia today.
0: While this was a tremendous accomplishment, folks in the American space program were getting frustrated. This is Gene Kranz discussing that frustration in his book, Failure is Not an Option. Kranz stated, We tried not to think about the gaps in knowledge, experience, and technology in our program. They were big enough to drive a truck through. And we could never forget that while we were screwing around with baby steps in suborbital missions, the Russians had put a man in orbit. So we would continue with our preparation at the Cape, tired of being one step behind. It seemed like no matter what we did, the Russians were always one step ahead. Shortly after Yuri Gagarin's mission, the United States launched Mercury Atlas III on April 25th, 1961. It was an uncrewed mission and had an issue with its trajectory. Rockets need to not only go up, but they also need to turn a bit sideways to gain speed to orbit the Earth. This particular Atlas rocket was supposed to turn at a certain altitude, but it didn't. It kept going straight up. One major the problem is that if the rocket exploded, debris would rain down near Cape Canaveral, Florida. As the rocket went higher and higher, it meant that debris would fall in a larger and larger area on the surface. That could hurt people and destroy property. As such, the Range Safety Officer issued a self-destruct command to blow up the rocket before it became more of a problem. Alan Shepard became the first American in space on May 25th, 1961. His mission is called Mercury Redstone 3, but each Mercury astronaut named their capsule. This one was called Freedom 7. The 7 was for the 7 Mercury astronauts. Since this was a redstone rocket, his flight was suborbital. He went out of the Earth's atmosphere into space and followed a parabolic path back to the surface. Take a look at how cramped Shepard was inside the Mercury capsule. Due to delays, he was sitting in the capsule for about 3 hours. His flight lasted 15 minutes. Something to note is that just days before there was the Mercury Atlas 3 incident, it wasn't as if these astronauts got into rockets that were pretty safe. 20 days after Alan Shepard's flight, President John F. Kennedy delivered a speech to Congress. I'll play a clip of that speech, but before that, I want you to know that at the time of his speech, one American had been to space, no American had orbited the Earth, and the grand total of American astronaut flight time in space was 15 minutes. This is a clip of Kennedy's speech to Congress.
4: Dramatic achievements in space, which occurred in recent weeks, should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957 the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. I believe we possess all the resources and talents necessary, but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish.
0: Again, the grand total of American astronaut flight time in space was 15 minutes. He wanted to go to the moon. After Shepard, it was Gus Grissom's Mercury Redstone 4 flight on July 21, 1961. Grissom named his capsule Liberty Bell 7. Again, since this launch was using a Redstone rocket, Grissom went to space but not into orbit. The mission was mostly okay until the time of recovery. The Mercury capsules landed in the ocean, and a Navy helicopter had to go pick them and the astronaut up. While waiting to be picked up, the door of Grissom's capsule opened. The capsule had an explosive door that would burst outward. This was a safety feature to make it easier for the astronaut to escape in the case of an emergency. It wasn't supposed to open like that in the water at this particular moment. But since it did and water was coming into the capsule, Grissom got out and swam to safety. The helicopter tried to pull the capsule up, but because it had taken in a lot of water, it was very heavy. It had gotten too heavy for the helicopter, so the pilot decided to let the capsule sink. Grissom returned to the ship safely but he was later criticized since it was thought that he had mistakenly pushed the button to open the door. He swore that he didn't. It turned out he was right and the door had opened by itself due to a fault in the system. Grissom just had terrible luck with capsule doors. We will come back to that later. The Liberty Bell 7 capsule was lost for years but in 1999 it was recovered as shown in the image on the right. Next was Mercury Atlas 6 which was launched on February 20th 1962. Notice that this is the other rocket, the Atlas rocket, which was capable of launching an astronaut into orbit. This made John Glenn the first American to orbit the Earth. Remember the first man, Yuri Gagarin, had orbited the Earth in his first mission. I mentioned John Glenn in the first lecture since he asked, quote, the girl, Katherine Johnson, to check the orbital calculations. I want to stay on John Glenn for a moment. On July 18, 1962, there was a special subcommittee meeting of the House Committee on Science and Astronautics to discuss potentially allowing women into the astronaut program. John Glenn and a few NASA folks testified. The text on the top is from a NASA chronology report outlining events. It reads, Astronauts John Glenn and Scott Carpenter... And George M. Lowe, NASA Director of Spacecraft and Flight Missions, testified before House Subcommittee on Qualification for Astronauts. Lowe testified that qualifications would be raised rather than lowered for Project Apollo, that the sex of the pilots had never been a requirement, but that if any resources were diverted for a woman in space effort, quote, we would have to slow down on our national goal of landing a man on the moon in this decade. Astronaut John Glenn said on women astronauts astronauts, quote, I couldn't care less who's over here in the next seat as long as it's the most qualified person. I wouldn't oppose a woman's astronaut training program. I just see no requirement for it, end quote. NASA had not found one woman to date who met all astronaut requirements, American citizenship, excellent physical condition, degree in physical or biological sciences or engineering, and experimental jet flight test experience. The next quote is from John Glenn. It states, quote, I think this gets back to the way our social or order is organized, really. It is just a fact. The men go off and fight the wars and fly the airplanes and come back and help design and build and test them. The fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. It may be undesirable." William Loveless was mentioned in the video earlier about the medical tests that astronaut candidates had to go through before being selected. He was the person responsible for developing those tests. After the Mercury 7, Loveless wanted to see how women would do, so he asked for volunteers. This was not funded by NASA, but rather it was funded through private funds. Thirteen women passed all of the tests that the Mercury 7 had passed. They are known as the Mercury 13. For more about them, please check out the book, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, and the Netflix documentary, Mercury 13. Vice President Johnson's final word on women astronauts were, quote, let's stop this now, end quote. Before we look at Vice President Johnson's statement, let's look at a letter sent by a NASA official on the left. It's from February 26, 1962, and it is addressed to Miss Kelly, who is a relative of a Reddit user. The Reddit user had found this letter and posted it online. The letter reads, Dear Miss Kelly, This is in response to your letter of February 20, 1962. Your offer to go on a space mission is commendable, and we are very grateful. This is to advise that we have no existing program concerning women astronauts, nor do we contemplate any such plan. We appreciate your interest and support of the nation's space program. Sincerely, O.B. Lloyd Jr. Director, Public Information. Next, let's consider a typed letter written on behalf of Vice President Johnson on March 15, 1962, to James Webb, the NASA administrator. The letter reads, I have conferred with Mrs. Philip Hart and Miss Jerry Cobb concerning their effort to get women utilized as astronauts. I'm sure you agree that sex should not be a reason for disqualifying a candidate for orbital flight. Could you advise me whether NASA has disqualified anyone because of being a woman As I understand it, two principal requirements for orbital flight at this stage are, 1. That the individual be experienced at high-speed military test flying, and 2. That the individual have an engineering background enabling him to take over controls in the event it became necessary. Would you advise me whether there are any women who meet these qualifications? If not, could you estimate for me the time when orbital flight will have become sufficiently safe that these two requirements are no longer necessary, and a a larger number of individuals may qualify. I know we both are grateful for the desire to serve on the part of these women, and look forward to the time when they can. Sincerely, Lyndon B. Johnson. This letter wasn't sent. The Vice President had to sign it, but instead he wrote in pen with large text, quote, Let's stop this now. File. Instructing this letter to be put aside. This is a picture of some of the Mercury 13 on February 2, 1995, as they gathered for the launch of the space shuttle mission STS-63. That The mission was special since it was the first time a woman was the space shuttle pilot. You may remember that the space shuttle was a bit like an airplane in that there were two people, the commander and the pilot, who were responsible for flying the space shuttle. Eileen Collins was the pilot for this mission and she would go on to be the commander on a later space shuttle mission. Jerry Cobb was one of the Mercury 13. She died on March 18th of this year, having never gone into space. In 1960, she had logged 7,000 hours flight time and had three world flying records. I've included two quotes. One states, quote, We always figured you would be the first. What happened? End quote. The other quote states, It is very sad the way American leaders have made a laughing stock of her. They shout at every turn about their democracy at the same time they announce that they will not allow a woman into space. This is open inequality. Take a moment to guess who these quotes are from. The hint is that she is a prominent person in space history the person who said these quotes is Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. Another figure you may not have heard about is Ed Dwight. He was the first black astronaut candidate. He was chosen by the Kennedy administration to go through initial astronaut training. He was an Air Force pilot and completed the aerospace research pilot training, but he wasn't selected by NASA to be an astronaut. I've included two books here, Soaring on the Wings of a Dream, and We Could Not Fail. He once stated, I don't have to do but two things. I gotta die, and I gotta go to the moon. He never went to space. I've also included a ridiculous quote by Julian Scheer, a NASA assistant administrator. Quote, I don't want to sound defensive, but NASA has a perfectly good record on the question of equal opportunity. End quote. After his Air Force career, Ed White became a successful sculptor. One of his sculptures is in Detroit, Michigan. It's called the Gateway to Freedom and depicts American slaves who escaped by the Underground Railroad. Canada abolished slavery before the United States, so slaves crossed into Canada from Detroit. We will continue with the Cold War and the Space Race next time.